1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Zneimer. Fitness trailblazer Hal Johnson speaks out on how racism led to the creation of his iconic show, Body Break. And former federal health minister Jane Philpot dishes on the pandemic the fix for long-term care and her new assignment trying to organize all the COVID-related data in Ontario. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. With this week's news of a promising low-cost steroid treatment for people with severe COVID-19 symptoms comes a dire warning from a UK study. It finds more than a quarter of Canadians have an underlying health condition, like cardiovascular disease or diabetes, that increases the possibility of severe COVID-19 symptoms. And 1.8 million of that group, or 5%, would require hospitalization if infected. The 75-year-old protester shoved to the ground by Buffalo police has been diagnosed with a skull fracture. Martin Gugino's lawyer says he remains in hospital and is unable to walk. Two Buffalo police officers have been charged with second-degree assault after a widely shared video captured Gugino falling to the ground after being pushed on June the 4th during a demonstration over the murder of unarmed black man George Floyd, by a white police officer in Minneapolis. The Buffalo officers have pleaded not guilty.
0: Aunt Jemima pancakes without her syrup is like the spring without the fall.
1: After 131 years, Aunt Jemima is no more. The popular pancake mix and syrup has been around since 1889, but the products will be rebranded after the Quaker Oats Company and its parent PepsiCo, conceded the brand is based on a negative racial stereotype. A new name will be unveiled at a later date. And just after this announcement, Uncle Ben's Rice also revealed plans to change its image in the wake of worldwide calls to end anti-black racism. The music industry is not immune to the current anti-racism movement around the globe. Penny Lane may be a Beatles classic, but a street in Liverpool, England with that same name is drawing controversy. Road signs are being defaced over claims it is named after 18th century slave merchant James Penny, who led slave voyages and defended slavery before the British government. Liverpool's International Slavery Museum says origins of the name are unclear and more research is underway. Jean Kennedy Smith, the last surviving sibling of President John F. Kennedy and a former diplomat, has died at the age of 92. She was the eighth child out of nine in the storied Kennedy family of Boston. At age 65, President Bill Clinton appointed her U.S. Ambassador to Ireland, and she played a key role in the Northern Ireland peace process.
0: We'll meet again, don't know
1: where, don't know where. She became a symbol of resilience and hope as Britain took on Germany during World War II. Dame Vera Lynn, Britain's wartime forces sweetheart, has died at 103. With songs like We'll Meet Again, she inspired both civilians and troops. She was a soloist by the age of 16, fronting a number of bands, and spent the war years entertaining the troops, performing in hospitals and army camps, and traveling as far as India and Burma. She never retired. And at the age of 92, Lynn became the oldest living artist to top the British album charts. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. In the midst of an international and national conversation about systemic racism, a very familiar voice of the Zoomer generation is stepping forward with his experience. johnson recounts how body break came about the popular fitness segment he starred in and produced with his wife joanne mcleod since the late 80s was created as a way to overcome racism and normalize interracial relationships take me back to the first big experience of racism in your career
2: racism is kind of it's like you it's like scar tissue that you just start creating over the years it really started when you start to date. That's when you really saw kind of racism and prejudice kind of rear its ugly head. I saw it in business when I was selling computer systems in the states, and I had no promotions. Although I was the number one salesperson out of 300 salespeople in the U.S., I was number one, but I wouldn't, didn't get a promotion. There was many different instances like that. But when I came to Canada, the first instance was uh, you know when I was you know hired and then fired in the same day from, you know, Sports Network. So it really... TSN. Yeah, that really hit me in the face. Tell me what happened. Jack Hutchinson hired me as a as a reporter, but because there was already Mark Jones, uh, a black reporter with TSN, the higher-ups didn't think it was appropriate or the right time to have two black reporters. Three hours later, he called me, and he said in tears that he couldn't hire me.
1: They actually told you... That they already had a black reporter and therefore could not hire you. They actually told you
2: that. Yeah, he he did. Jack was the messenger who was very upset that he because he was the one that hired me, and he was told that he couldn't. I felt bad for him. You know, to be honest, he was probably instructed not to tell me to say, "Oh no, the position was filled" or whatever. But he couldn't, in, in good conscience, tell me that, and he was honest. What
1: did you think that they already had a black person?
2: Sometimes. You feel that as a black person. Um, you think, oh, they've got their quota of us in, in the situation. And that's sometimes why it's almost you get pitted against one another because there's only like one allowed in or whatever that might be. That, that's the that's the scar tissue that we have. What minorities go through is very, very, very similar to what, what women go through.
1: Tell me about the second big instance of racism you experienced.
2: Yeah, on June 8th of 88, I went ahead and I did a... I was doing a commercial at a racetrack, and I I just was cheering, and there was a white woman next to me cheering, and then there was a white guy, and then halfway through uh, rehearsing this promotion, the uh, assistant director came to the director and just whispered something in his ear, and then the director came to the other people and had them switch positions, so now I'm standing next to the white guy. And I asked the assistant director at uh, in the buffet. I said, "Oh, what? what uh, Why'd you have him have him switch?" And he kind of laughed. He says, "Well, you know, the the client really didn't want you next to the girl because you know that you guys might be together, and that they didn't feel comfortable with that." And that was really the spark the, that uh, that afternoon. I sat down with a piece of paper uh, during lunch and wrote out a storyboard. And I I went home that afternoon and uh, talked to Joanne about it and. Within six weeks, uh, we'd had a finished product with no production experience. We didn't really know what we were doing. And um, within, I guess, uh, about three months uh, in total, uh, we had a contract with ParticipAction.
1: Participation was really the result of combating racism.
2: It really was. And, you know, when we went to TSN uh, after I'd gone to 42 different companies and pitched the idea and been turned down and went to TSN, and TSN uh, said because I'm black and Joanne's white, they couldn't put it on the air. And and I was I went home and not angry, but just kind of a little dismayed. And and I looked at it and I asked Joanne. I said, "Who who promotes multiculturalism and fitness for the for Canada?" And she said, "Participation, participation." She didn't quite know the the name. And and I looked it up in the phone book and I called them. And uh, within a very short period of time, we had a contract. The irony is. TSN was our number one supporter of Body Break over the years. TSN played Body Break more than any other station. It was just one person's, I, and I will say, I don't. I look at it as that person wasn't racist. The person was prejudiced and afraid. He was afraid to make a decision. He was afraid to go against the what was normal. It was more fear than it was hate. And that's how I look at things, you know. I, and I try to you know, always have a positive attitude towards, uh, towards things and towards life.
1: They didn't want you next to a white woman, but Joanne is white, you're black. How has that impacted your marriage, your partnership?
2: Zero. I mean, Joanne is Joanne and I'm Hal and I grew up in uh, my dad's black and my mom's Irish and Joanne grew up in a German and Italian home, or she grew she she Joanne's German and Italian, but she was brought up in a, in a Scottish home, so you know we cover a lot of bases. Um, so to us, that's normal. My parents got married in 1955. If they worried about what other people thought, <laughs> they wouldn't have been married. <laughs> so whatever I've had to, you know, go through, my parents have had to go through ten times more struggle than I uh, or my sister have ever had to. So I'm certainly not a victim. Uh, my road was uh, a, a little more challenging. But I think uh, the days today are—it's brighter days, and I think uh, things are changing for the for the positive.
1: Are you surprised by the reaction? This is getting Your huge reaction, and by the way, immediate apology from TSN.
2: Yeah, I'm overwhelmed and humbled, and um, they didn't need to apologize. I—they really didn't.
1: I guess it's shocking to a lot of people because you've been in our living rooms for years and we think of you as somebody who is a celebrity
2: i'm just hal and this just happened to me and it's you know hopefully i can help younger people to you know to think that today is today's the things are getting better and hopefully there's more people in decision-making positions that are female that are persons with disabilities and that are in different uh, ethnicities and that's what that's what my hope is hal johnson thank you so much Thank you. My pleasure.
1: That was Zoomer fitness icon Hal Johnson on his experience of racism. He's appeared on recent episodes of the Zoomer TV and stars in a campaign to avoid frailty. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. She walked away from the pinnacle of Canadian politics over a matter of principle. Former Health Minister Jane Philpott held a variety of Cabinet posts until she was ejected from the Liberal caucus, because of her objection to the handling of the SNC-Lavalin affair. When the pandemic hit, she returned to her roots as a physician, and now Ontario's progressive conservative government is tapping her to organize the province's diffuse and dysfunctional medical data system. Take me back to March when the pandemic hit. What were you doing and, and what did you decide to do?
3: Well, uh, like all of us, I wasn't expecting to have all of my spring plans changed, uh, but uh, I had been uh, expecting to do some traveling and some speaking and some other work while I wait for my new job as the next dean of the Faculty of Health Sciences at Queen's. But obviously, everything was canceled. And uh, the first thing I did was offer to help at our local hospital, at Markham-Stilwell Hospital. And they put me to work at a COVID assessment centre, which was very uh, interesting work. And then uh, a few weeks after that, I got involved helping out with a very difficult outbreak that took place at a group home here in Markham.
1: When you decided to go back to work amid the pandemic, did you expect to be right on the front lines like that? Well, I
3: think as the pandemic started and everyone realized how serious it was, as you know, there are lots of doctors and nurses and others who stepped up who had been not necessarily in active practice recently. And I was one of them who thought, you know what, there's a need for help. I'm going to uh, call up the local hospital and see what they need. And uh, I, I didn't necessarily expect to be right on the front lines. But I'm, I'm uh, glad I was able to do something to be helpful because this is a very serious challenge for all of us and the the more of us that can jump in to help the better.
1: What was the most surprising thing you found when you were doing that work? Well
3: I think probably the most profound experience was my work at this group homes. There was a terrible outbreak there out of 42 of the residents. Mm -hmm. 40 of them were positive with COVID. Um, Tragically six of them died and uh there were more than 50 staff members who were also infected, so most of the staff had to leave. And it was a devastating situation that they were facing there. And uh, I certainly learned a lot about how people with disabilities are amongst the most vulnerable among us and are the one some of those who really need extra protection at a time like this.
1: Did you expect to be on the front lines in that way? no it was not
3: something in this case it wasn't something that i expected to be doing but uh the executive director of the of the home uh was uh really struggling to find help when the outbreak happened she reached out to me via a mutual uh, friend and said we're desperate can you come and help and i got on my scrubs and headed down the road and uh jumped in to help provide care and help them uh, be able to get enough other healthcare workers that uh, that the needs could be met. So it certainly was not something that was ever planned, but it was uh, something that I'm I'm glad I was able to help with and hopefully um, ease some of the suffering
1: that was going on there. Did you feel personally in danger? Well, I mean, you think a
3: little bit about the fact that you're going into a situation where you're surrounded by people who have the virus, and in those early days, were probably infectious. But you don't think about uh, the risk when you know that there are people whose lives are depending upon you. You do it, do the right thing to protect yourself, but you have to you you can't abandon these folks.
1: When you were health minister, was pandemic preparedness something that was on your radar?
3: Yes, it's something that uh, certainly there was a a reasonable amount of work that was done, especially, you know, when uh, we had periodically had meetings with other health ministers from around the world. There were efforts all along the way to try to have more investments in public health. And it's something that in, in good times and in safe times, governments don't necessarily want to spend a lot of money on. But Uh, I think, you know, in in retrospect, it would be great if we had had stronger public health laws, stronger public health systems in the country. And now, hopefully going forward, we will, because this has been a, a shocking lesson to everyone about the importance of investing in public health. And how
1: do you think we've done
3: there are areas where obviously I think we didn't do as well as we should have around protecting seniors uh, for example and particularly those who live in long-term care facilities uh, that wasn't necessarily on the the front of mind uh, in those early days.
1: How do you think we fix that mess?
3: Well, I I'm, I'm a big fan of of national standards um assuming that they are going to be upheld and that somebody's going to make sure that they are actually being followed because, you know, there are there are many things that, um, you know, that we know about the kind of care that should be there and particularly like staffing levels in nursing homes. There should be serious consideration uh, in terms of bringing it into the public health care system because, uh, you know, we all know we're going to get care if we show up at hospitals. Uh, nobody has to worry about whether or not they'll be able to get high-quality care. And somehow bringing long-term care into a similar system, I believe, would have some significant
1: advantages. Does that mean getting rid of the private operators or just bringing it under the Canada Health Act?
3: It's a matter of whether it's a for-profit or a not-for-profit facility. As soon as you bring the profit motive into the delivery of care, it can certainly complicate things. I think there's some work that has to be done to to make those decisions for sure, but we've seen some pretty concerning statistics even here in Ontario around the fact that the outcomes have certainly been worse in some of the for-profit facilities.
1: The Ontario government is tapping you to try to make sense of the information systems. It looks from the appointment that you have a month to try to bring this under control. I mean...
0: What are the chances well, of
1: that? <laughs> well, I, I don't think everything will be solved in a month. Jane Philpott, I think I speak for a lot of people that we really admire you for the way you've stepped up during this. And, and thank you so much for chatting with me.
3: Well, thanks so much for uh, reaching out. and It's been great to have a chance to talk.
1: Former Health Minister Jane Philpott is the incoming Dean of the Faculty of Health Sciences and Director of the School of Medicine at Queen's University. She'll be advising the province on its new health data platform. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Zneimer. Thanks for joining me today, and be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide.
0: Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi. Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.